Hi, Homo Sapiens. If you enjoyed our last episode, Hot Bow Action, with Matt Wheeling, you're going to love the upcoming digital premiere of the documentary, The Bowmakers. This fantastically produced piece features five master bowmakers from Port Townsend, Washington, and will walk you through the craft of their making from start to finish. From ethically sourcing the wood, to the work at the bench, to the playing experience in a musician's hands. Tickets are available today from the Orchestra Seattle and the Seattle Chamber Singers. Purchase by visiting osscs.org. The show is available September 12th through the 20th for viewing. And you're in for a treat. One of the bowmakers is Matt Wheeling himself. Again, visit osscs.org and get your tickets for The Bowmakers and get ready to get your hands a beautiful shade of Pernambuco purple. Am, am I normal, normal? You look great. Normal, normal. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Lynn. You look great too, big guy. Oh, you're just saying that to butter me up. Welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. You've heard of this Omo Bono? No? Omo Bono, no! No. Most embarrassing loser son of Strad? The gambler who spent the rest of his life in servitude next to his father. That dude. That's, our, That's dude. our dude. You out there, you are homo, you are an homo sapien. You belong. Oh, oh, what's that you say? You like violins, but you sell fast fashion all day. We accept you. Your gig is serving food to entitled people while wearing a mask. Good enough for us. <laughs> My people, I am Rosie Deloach, and I am joined by benevolent hosts, Chris Jacoby and Jerry Lynn. Hello. Hey. Jerry. Yes. How many times do you measure something before you cut it? More than is healthy. Chris. How many times do you measure something before you cut it? Uh, I, I built a wall in a bunch of cabinets recently with only a chainsaw. Um, I don't really measure stuff. That seems right. <laughs> of course. Today we are, we are, we are weary and heavy laden for it is the season of american insanity and the season of back to school or the lack of back to school which is its own kind of crazy do you guys feel me on this yes we have all the things happening we feel all the things we join hands with you and declare our insanity wait a second wait do i have to be insane with you guys i'm just okay okay okay. You're, you're just bacon if you're not he's normally <laughs> insane though this is this is like having add and taking uppers like now i just feel normal is this your most sane time ever no i'm a, i'm a fucking mess <laughs> today we have no guest and we bring to you sell it to me sell it to me show me the money and how do we actually make money off the sale while we are gone don't drink the water in that cup on your workbench. 
It's the water you've been dipping your sandpaper into, and it has particles of 100-year-old dirt from the sweaty fingers of 100-year-old people inside it. Oh, I hate people cheese. And you have already drunk that water at one point in your career. And you, you remember that taste. That taste has never left you. Sometimes you stay up late at night thinking about that taste. Okay, go ahead. Drink the water. Yeah! And now a word from our totally real sponsor. Come to America Luthier School, located in Springfield. America Luthier School will teach you how to sand things for a living. All day long, with finer and finer sandpaper. Belt sanders, too. And then America Luthier School will show you how to make really sharp cuts using exacto blades. And then we'll show you how to get the blood off the things you've sanded all day long. Damn it, Antonio. Put your hoo-ha back in its hoo holster. You're getting blood all over the violin. Dang old man, it's one of you fakemen get out there and make me a violin. America Luthier School. America Luthier School is also great at showing you how, oh, you already said that. Also featuring, (laughs) also featuring epoxy and epoxy products. Taste the wood, not the no good. Oh, oh, and you get to make a violin. (laughs) Anything else we need to add? (laughs) No, I think that's perfect. Welcome back, my friends. Chris and Jerry, how does your mask smell today? Jerry? Slightly musty. Yours, Chris? Uh, Mine smells like corned beef burps and sour beer. Mm -hmm. Oh, lovely. Definitely strong coffee in my mask. And uh, I'm just slowly getting more and more makeup debris on the inside. Weird. I don't know why. I have the exact same problem, too. I thought so. I thought so. Yeah. Uh, Anything new going on with you guys? You know, just getting some jobs done, which is great, and enjoying a brief respite while my son can not be at home so I can work, so I'm just trying to get as much stuff done as possible, and I've got not one, but two jobs leaving the shop this week, so. Wonderful. Oh, that feels good. Yeah, it feels great. Chris? I get, I get nothing. I, I nothing. <laughs> when we air this, it's going to be early August, and... Over here in Texas, it has already been declared that we are not doing in-person back to school. So, um, yeah, and it's been declared that all the sixth grade orchestra beginners that usually flood my shop were not having sixth grade orchestra. Yeah, orchestras are canceled here too. It's so sad. It's frustrating because if you are going to do any one music activity, that is the safest one. Yeah. Or maybe like percussion, but band you can't do, singing you can't do. Well, if, if this is going to air in early August, like uh, Baltimore, who is our North Star from D.C., has already declared uh, essential and non- non-essential businesses shut back down. I think we're headed to another shutdown, and yeah. it's going to trickle back to the South where you guys are. I mean, it's I I know for a fact that Lots of teachers aren't going back till January, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's going to be any school or any programs of any kind in mo- most of the East Coast in 2021. I think you're right. I don't want to register that quite in my head yet. I want to think for my sanity that it's just a few weeks and then school's going to happen. 
you know, but just like the last shutdown, they they would do this and then they'd move the date back and then they move the date back. Yeah. It seems like it's a psychological uh, calming technique. Yeah. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. If that helps, then then do it. Yeah. <sighs> We're going to make it, right? Yeah. Let's talk about sales. Sales. Okay. So unofficially, Chris, you're going to, you're going to be kind of like our interview today. Sweet. Yeah. You are a maker. God help us. <laughs> you wanted me to call you. What was it? A, uh, a bumbling salesman? Is yes. That right? Yes. A okay. bumblebee salesman. All right. So I defy <laughs> physics. With sales. Like the transformer. No, that guy's a dick. <laughs> So you've mentioned so many small things to me over the last couple of years that I want to understand better. You talk about wholesale deals with shops. I actually had one of your instruments at my shop for a stretch and it got some interest, but ultimately I sent that back to you. You talk about doing commissions. You drive across the country or you get on a plane to close deals. Let's talk about this. Sell it to me. Coffee is for closers, Rosie. Good. <laughs> so okay, let's let's start simple. As a violin maker, viola maker, cello maker, what are the options for selling your instrument in a market? Uh, so in a given market, ideally you want to get to a place where you have a a waiting list of orders of people waiting for an instrument from you. And the best way to get there is really to get in with a teacher or a studio or to have your instruments in the hands of someone influential so that other people want what they're working with. What usually ends up happening, and there are people who are talented or well-placed enough that they just only make orders, um, is mm-hmm. that you have to make stuff on spec and uh, leave it on consignment with a shop or a dealer or take it and sell it wholesale to a shop or dealer. And both of those options give you less than 100% of the cost. So consignment, so, go ahead. Real quickly. Tell me, when you say on spec, what are some details about that? Oh, just that you're not making it to order to someone's for what someone wants. You're making what you think will sell in that market. Okay. And an important part of making sales in a given market is learning what the dealers you want to work with or the teacher or studio you want to work with like and are willing to represent. And uh, throughout the course of a year, uh, when I was only making... If I was making something and it came to feel like or came to resemble or sound like a certain way, you know, if, if it was dark, if uh, the, the purfling got kinked up when I was putting it in, I would know, oh, I can sell this to so-and-so. If it was totally refined and had a very bright sound, I would go, oh, well, this is going to Boston. Okay, you know? okay. It also allows you a lot more freedom that way, too. You can kind of do what your heart wants. Yeah. But you're you're hanging your ass out over the the country, <laughs> hoping that your your freedom means you're gonna you're gonna make the bills, you know. Uh, the the very best. That's that's always such an American statement. Oh, so, yeah. Well, that's where I sell my stuff mostly. <laughs> I made a few sales in uh, in Australia and France and Canada, and that's cool. I, I sold a viola to South Africa once and was freaked out that it was a scam, and it wasn't. Oh my gosh! Now, okay. When we are talking about markets, Jerry, I want you to explain this to me. Is there one market? Are there many markets? Tell me about this. So market is kind of a general term. Uh, What Chris Uh is describing, I'd say he's probably talking more or less about young professionals 
uh, maybe more established professionals and mm -hmm. high end, I'll call them enthusiasts or amateurs. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about people that are looking for things that are, you know, it's not their first instrument. And that's another type of market. The beginner market is, is a sort of market. And then you have, I got that market covered. Come to me. And then there are people who are collectors, like high end musicians, like soloists. That's a different sort of game altogether. And each market requires its own sort of expertise. And so what Chris is talking about is kind of narrowing in on what's going to sell in that particular area for that particular sort of musician. That's his expertise in that market. Okay. So in my mind, when I hear collector, I think old instruments. Is that ever not true? No, not necessarily. There are people out there that collect modern instruments. In fact, I know of a guy, I think he's in Texas, who collects violas and has one of Chris's violas. Dwight Brown, Del Rio. Dwight's an awesome guy. That yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. He's building a collection to donate to the Interlochen School, where he, he went to the school where you live on campus and uh, get full-time orchestral and, and academic learning. So when he passes away, there will be a bequest of, I mean, I think at this point, 12 to 18 modern instruments of the highest order. And I'm, I'm very flattered to be part of it. That is so amazing. That's really, really wonderful. But Dwight, please live a long time. Hell yeah. We love Dwight. Well, I do. I don't know about y'all. The, the best uh, way to sell an instrument, though, I'll tell the story. I, I made an instrument that was specifically for a certain person who had given me a deposit and they wanted a slimmer neck. So I put carbon fiber in the neck and they wanted a certain color of varnish. Um, they wanted it more orange than I'm used to working. And uh, they wanted it to have a brighter sound, but they wanted a Del Jesu model. And so I worked through this instrument. <laughs> yeah. Right. And in the end, um, they just stopped being in contact with me. And so I kept the deposit and I was depressed about it. And we were trying to look at houses in Nebraska. And uh, that weekend, a fantastic fiddler and a fine human named Terry Keefe, I'd never met him before, came into the shop, said he was looking for instruments around 10 grand, played my violin for 15 minutes that I was in despair of selling, paid for it in full with no trade-in, shook my hand and left the shop. That's how, how I want to sell my instrument. Yeah, man. Every yeah. Time. I've seen it a few times since then. I've seen the violin a few times since then. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really fond of it, but uh, Terry Keefe, you're the man. That's incredible. Okay. So we have listed basically getting known enough so you can mm -hmm. accumulate a wait list, leaving instruments on consignment with a shop or a dealer or basically handing it out to a teacher or a studio so that you can give them kickbacks to help sell, sell an instrument. And wholesale. And wholesale. So let's, uh, let's go through some pros and cons. Tell me what is working and what doesn't work. Yeah, um, I mean, so that scale runs from me, the maker, making 100% of the money down to me, the maker, excuse me, um, making 40 to 50 to 60% of the money moving it wholesale. And then in opposition to that, the more money I make, the more admin, emotional exhaustion, and contact I have with the client, and the less money I make, 
the faster I can go sit back at the bench and start another instrument to decide where I sit on that scale. And this is, this is actually like one of the pieces of advice I give to younger makers or makers who ask me, like, how do you feed a family of six making instruments was you need to decide where you want to be on that scale. If you love the human interaction, then you can make the most money, but you will spend hours and hours and hours on each sale finagling and being present and being emotionally available to someone, or you can make half the money and you can make wood chips and never have to comb your beard or wear a nice shirt. So for clarification, selling violins is one of the hardest things you can possibly do in the trade. Yeah. Oh no. It is so much harder, you know, for the amount of time that you put in and the amount of wear and tear you put on your mind and body losing sleep or whatever. Uh, it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. And now back to Chris. Yeah, it's, it's true. I tried for years to find a way to, to come up with gimmicks and, and force sales and stuff. And really what I found is uh, that for me, the con of uh, not like a con man, but the, the negative side of, of making a yeah. direct retail sale was that I was too worn out to have the energy to make instruments that I liked if I was the only contact point between myself and the sale of the instrument. So I preferred doing wholesale um, and found ways to make mm -hmm. instruments fast enough that, uh, that I could make that work. But then, I mean, really, there there was a breaking point again in Nebraska for me with a the the instrument I mentioned that went to Terry, and then there was another client who wanted me to copy his instrument by a living maker, by Joseph Tripodi, who worked with and trained the fantastic Edward Mayday, uh, who's one of my favorite people on Instagram. Ed just hangs out in New York by Woodsmere Bay, making two instruments a month and kicking ass. And Crazy woods that guy uses. That guy uses some really cool, yeah. unusual woods, man. I love domestic, it. Yeah, domestic wood, which isn't normally considered tone wood, like catalpa. Catalpa, what the heck? He got one catalpa tree, yeah, that, that I think is just working for him. <laughs> what kind of wood? Catalpa. catalpa. I've never heard of this. It has beautiful... Big, like, like Neolithic looking leaves on it. You don't got them where you live, Rosie. No, I'm sure no. I don't. But so this guy wanted me to copy a modern maker who's still alive's instrument so he could sell that instrument. And uh, he also was convinced that he had figured out that violin makers were just full of shit and didn't listen to his ideas about what made a violin sound good because they didn't want him horning in on their money. <laughs> so he like had, and I was too naive to look at him and, and be like, hit the bricks. Like, <laughs> absolutely not. Like I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make an instrument, which is unsaleable once you're gone. It's, it's the same thing that happens if somebody orders a 17 inch viola, you have to carefully spell out in the contract that they can't have the same rules for return and full money back, mm -hmm. whatever you're offering, mm -hmm. because a 17-inch viola is nigh unsaleable. Um, 
So yeah, I, I made him this instrument and he was unhappy with it. And if I had not compromised and looked at him and gone, I'm not going to do this shit, but I will make you an instrument that sounds the way you want. It would have been successful on all sides. Mm -hmm. I do want to steer back to what you said about preferring to do uh, wholesale. And you are one of the more extroverted people that I know in this field. Now. And it is, and it's, and it's very telling that even you're like, nope, I want to be at my workbench. That, that tells me a lot about the kind of work involved in, uh, in doing a sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is a matter of personality as much as, as economics. I mean, choosing the thing that I love to do as a thing that I feed my children with and pay off the minivan with, it's an insane idea when I look at it at, at face value. Yeah. You know, if what you value as a craftsman for yourself and for your mental health can be taken away by needing to do it in order to make that next sale. And I spent a few years making a small viola a month that was successful. And I mean, I've had people tell me or get back to me that their, their employers have told them like, there's no way Chris makes that many instruments without a a CNC machine. And uh, no, I just, didn't sleep and didn't love what I was doing for a few years. And that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I was just turning shit out that would sell at a rate that was viable so that we could have a house and could continue to be hippie artists, you know? Yeah. Did you want to talk about, you said Trevor tells me I always wanted to be, just be an artist. Oh yeah. Um, So along those lines, uh, my good friend, Trevor Davis, who's a bass maker in Austin now, when he's building something or making choices which are expressive, where he expresses his personality into an instrument, you know, I'll point at it and grin at him and he goes, yeah, man, I I just always wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, when I became a jazz bass player, I wanted to be an artist. And to an extent, if you're respectful of tradition and functionality, you can be really successful by being vulnerable in your work, um, mm-hmm. by taking risks that show your personality through to the player. It has to look like part of the orchestra from the audience, you know, and, and when, when I've done stuff like this, it's, it's the same thing. But instruments will sell because they make connections to players. I, I believe in a woo-woo way, it's, it's, it's like it is pheromones. Um, the connections that work done with your heart mm-hmm. makes with somebody trying it are stronger than the sound or aesthetics can quantify. And I mean, I talked about the viola boom days for me. Um, That was about economics. And when I made artistic decisions there, they were because I drilled through the back of the scroll because I was moving too fast. So I looked down and I was like, shit, I better make a Turkish cross out of this and pretend that it's a religious viola. (laughs) And like when, when a dealer looks at that, they don't go, oh, this is artistic. You can feel the difference. They're like, why the fuck did you drill through the back of the viola? <laughs> so from fulfilling yourself to being economically smart, being economically smart is getting 100% of the cost of your instrument mm-hmm. when you're done with that instrument because you put your heart and your good feelings into it and you want it to connect. And that's the most exhausting thing. So my friend Jason Starkey, he's a really fine maker in Washington State. He gave me a lot of good advice, uh, but one of the pieces of good advice he gave me was to just purposefully break it up. So if I've made a couple of wholesale sales in the last few months, 
I will try to bend the ears of my contacts and shops that like my stuff until I not not shops, but uh, but players that like my stuff until I shake a retail full price sale out somewhere to break it up, and therefore I don't become sad with myself that I'm just moving to meet the economic side. I can also get a bigger paycheck and possibly you know pay off a used car, put some money towards debt, buy some more wood, and feel like. What I love is still there on the workbench with the instrument I'm making. Do you suppose it's just because it's a different kind of mental challenge? It refreshes you in some way? Yeah. And and it's also, I get to where I will resent the instruments I'm making Mm. if I'm doing only one thing or the other. And this is, this is my personality. You know, I, I also discovered that I shouldn't just be making I should be repairing, restoring, mm-hmm. sizing kids for for rentals. I've talked about this a bunch because I need to break it up so that I don't become monomaniacal about whatever I'm doing. You need to remember the people. The people. Yeah, the people. Jerry, in working in in shops, what's your take on on that that dichotomy? Uh, well, I, I certainly do. Man, I think about this a lot anymore because right now I've come to really enjoy not seeing people (laughs) at some point I will miss it. I'm sure. But for right now, you know, the FedEx guy and the UPS guy is enough. Even in, even in the era of COVID, you're like, this is fine. No, this is, there are, there are some musicians that I I desperately miss. And and I've actually had kind of social Skype or, or zoom calls with them just because it's like, Hey man, how you doing? And I'm like, we don't hang out socially, but we're doing this now anyway. So love me. Yeah, I, I can I can totally understand the the need to size up kids. Uh, right now, for myself, being predominantly someone who is it's more of an addiction than a love with with doing detailed restoration work. The ability to just let the world go away is really nice, and I hear stories about. Some of my colleagues who have doormats that say "Go away" <laughs> uh, at their shop door, and some of my mentors and teachers have been really grumpy individuals, and I totally get it now. All of your mentors, all of my mentors have been really grumpy. <laughs> They've been really grumpy mm-hmm. people. So, part of me misses the, I, I miss the dealing aspect. I do miss selling instruments. I miss the acquiring an old instrument and figuring out the whodunits of it who made it, who did what to it, and then figuring out where that sits in, in a showroom of, of instruments and what do I need to fill those gaps in my showroom. I love that. That's storytelling, but in, internally, and it, it makes that process more fun. Yeah, yeah. And so we were just talking about this ourselves. I miss having a violin hunter show up and going through 30 instruments and finding the the gem or two and then living with it for a few months before it even gets a part on the bench to try to figure out what it is. Yeah. I miss that a lot, but people screw them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this made me think about, uh, so our editor, Jason peoples, he and I will jeeples will have maker days a couple times a week, or I'm sorry, we will have maker days a couple times a month and mm-hmm. uh, I'll spend the day at his shop over in Arlington Arlington's Strings, guys. It's a lovely place. 
it's one of the few people I can hang out with and I see the grumpening process. <laughs> not, saying that, not saying that Jason's grumpy, but I, I, I see the unique workings of his brain that I'm like, I've been there. I've been there. Uh-huh. You just want to be at your desk and focus. And there's a uh-huh. hundred questions coming at you when you're technically not even at work. So Jason and I get along great because of this. I always knew you would. (laughs) Hey, Omo Sapiens out there. I've got Rodney Moore with Learning Trade Secrets here with me. Rodney. Hey. In the winter, it's too dry. In the summer, it's too wet. When you're rehearing bows, how do you best account for humidity changes? Well, this is super hard. Uh, I remember last year I had a, a, a student from the Cleveland Institute of Music uh, come in the shop. I need to rehair, and I'm going to go to Houston for a couple of weeks, and then I'm off to Aspen, so can you rehair for that? <laughs> and uh, the answer is I can rehair for one or the other, but I can't rehair for both. The most important thing is you don't want the hair to get so short and the hair it's so tight the bow can't be loosened at all, and sometimes it's even more than tank tension. So if you're going to air, air to the side if making the hair too long. Another thing that players can do that can kind of help out a little bit is um, these uh, little sponge rubber thumb grips that you can get. A lot of different vendors sell them. It's a lot like a little pencil grip if you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And you can just put that on over your thumb grip and I even have one customer that will just snip off and make a little ring and slide that on to sort of extend their thumb grip so that it get that gap between the thumb grip and the frog right so again it's it's super hard especially if your difference is 20 or 30 percent it's really hard to make a bow too short for humidity and then send it off somewhere you don't, you don't want the bow to be tight so be very careful with that thanks so much Guys, make sure you check out learningtradesecrets.com regularly for updates and for classes coming out in 2021. If you need to know more about advanced setup, about bow rehairing or bow restoration, if you need to learn about varnishing, they're the place to go. Again, that's learningtradesecrets.com. So uh, you, you guys want to role play with me a little bit? Not like that, Lynn. Sure. Okay. Oh. Keep your voice in your pocket. So uh, A, B, C, always be closing. Always be closing. Mm-hmm. How how to make sales. How do you kill sales? So uh, if we go through a few scenarios, I know I, I wrote them out for you. So the numbers are for one of you guys to come in mm-hmm. and I'll ask you how the instrument's going. And then you ask for the thing that uh, that that is that is in the numbered thing. Okay. You want to go first, Rosie? Yes, I'll go first. All right. So so it's so good to see you, Mrs. Hartrushka. Thank you. Um, Thanks for seeing me. I appreciate this. And uh, I mean, uh, you've had the instrument for a week now. I think you sound great on it. I mean, li- listening to you play the mm-hmm. the Eldar cello concerto on the violin, I, I was really impressed. Really, so, how are you feeling? About I really it? like it. I really like it. I gotta say, the neck feels like a little bit bulky, and I'm not sure that I'm ready to buy it. Could you like thin the neck just a little bit for me, so I could see if that's gonna work? <laughs> All right. So I'm stepping in here. Your line, as someone making sales, 
Mrs. Hartruchka is off to one side. She's frozen in time. She can't hear us while we discuss this. I'm sorry. My accent does not match <laughs> Mrs. Hartruchka at all. Hey, hey, you know, people find love from all around the world and are, are still Texan. <laughs> so can you make a structural change to the instrument yeah. so that the player can decide if they want to buy it? And uh, the answer is, I am happy to make a structural change to a point once the violin is paid for. Mm-hmm. And I'll do that for free. But I, you can't pick up uh, a sports car and have them mod out the exhaust before the check is cleared. And it's really important as a salesman, these sorts of things, not only do you start as a violin salesman in a situation where people expect you to harm your bottom line because that's the way the industry works. But uh, you will pretty fast get to a point where you're changing things so that you can't sell it once they've decided they're still not going to get it. Mm -hmm. So Jerry, you want to be number two? Hey man. Oh, Hey Bilbo. How's it going? Man. I am just digging on this violin and you know, man, man, I want to take it to, 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 to Dr. Galakowitz in Pittsburgh in like three weeks, man. Can I have some more time with your instrument? Please. All right. So we got to shut down Bilbo. Um, and I, I'm going, I do want to say people aren't out to screw you over, but as, no, they're not. as makers, we have, as dealers, as shop owners, we have to protect ourselves as if we are a retail store. And the tendency is to not do that because we like players. Well, Jerry doesn't, but, uh, and we, I do. <laughs> I know you do. I like players. So I've had instruments go out and be used. And I find out because this is a really small industry, even including the players, you find out later it was used to take in some occasions, which I'm proud of, to win auditions. And then the instruments returned to me because they couldn't pull the trigger, but they couldn't be honest with me. So I'm left penniless. And uh, in general, letting someone have an instrument longer than a week is counterproductive to sales. That is an amount of time if they are able, if somebody comes back and is like, look, my kid was sick and I didn't get to play it every day, they can have more time. But if they're jamming on it and they're just indecisive and they want to extend it a long period of time, you have to lean back on yourself as a retail space and go, and I got this from Guy Harrison, who is one of the finest makers alive. Uh, he's in, he's in Canada. Um, and I really respect the guy's work and I respect his level head. He said, at this point, I say to them, you can rent for a minimum of one month, the instrument I made for 10% of its value. I will be taking that up front. I will be taking a credit card and your ID. And that way you can do whatever you want with the instrument and any damage that comes back uh, we will bill for, but if it needs new strings, I'll let it cover that. Mm. And when you make decisions from that place of respect for yourself, you make more sales because the player suddenly respects you. You're not somebody who's begging them for, for their expertise and trying to put an instrument into their hands because man, it'll be great 
exposure for you. You have to take yourself seriously, respect you and your instrument enough to look at them and go, you need to treat me with the respect that I deserve. You can't go outside of the contract without us coming to something that will help me feed my kids. I would like to solicit one exception to this rule. It is a global pandemic uh, yeah. and the government makes you shut your doors <laughs> and you have a showroom full of instruments. So you call your friends up and say, hey, just take it for a long time. I can't do yeah, sales. I can't. Yeah, nobody's man. coming. Just play on it. Yes. So I, that led to one sale for me this last time. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, no, I, I agree with you totally. And uh, I won't pretend that I follow all my rules, but we're talking about how to f- how to feed a family by making sales. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Rosie, and it's not just during a pandemic. There are times when an instrument needs to be played yes. so that you can set it back up. I, I guess what I'm really trying to push here is that the dynamic that one enters into with someone who's looking at your instrument needs to be more like someone coming to buy a car and less the way that it is and was when I started, which is with the the person with who owns the violin and is trying to move it, mm-hmm. always trying desperately to do whatever the other, whatever yeah. the buyer desires. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I got, I got, I got another question for you. Um, oh hey hey, hey Miss, mrs donkelson hi hi it's wonderful to be here and i i love your instrument it's just exquisite that little like the purfling that you put in the scroll along the the edge in the middle there that's that's yeah. stellar you didn't need to oh, do that thank you so much mrs donkelson so i i really want to please take your shoes off I, please I, you're I, in my shop but i but they're really nice shoes you have to wear a mask okay um, so I really want to make this instrument mine, but like, can we work something out? Can we just do like some monthly payments or um, can you like cut me a deal or, you know, or are, are, is there like a grace period where I could change my mind? No. <laughs> so again, the answer is that you don't want somebody to give their business to someone else. So you can't treat this like my no button. You have to, uh, you have to be sensitive and you have to treat people with respect, but uh, no one buys a high end luxury item besides an instrument and expects this sort of thing. Yeah. We're super lucky to have noteworthy credit union and other credit unions and like mountain America credit union in Utah Uh, gives personal loans for instruments. And a lot of these places, if you talk to the bank, they will talk to you the same as if you're trying to get a business loan. They want you to buy machinery so that they have something to grab if you end up being a deadbeat. These places can and will consider the instrument you're buying the collateral that they rest the loan upon, even if your credit isn't, it can't be terrible, but even if your credit's not great. As a maker, as a dealer, Expect payment in full upon delivery. Uh, and I'm not being heartless. It, it is the same dynamic I mentioned that's kind of sick. And I, of course, have a small chip on my shoulder about it. So I'm sure that this will upset some people who come at it from the other side who are trying to spend a great deal of money on something 
which is going to change and grow with them. And it's hard to make a decision. But um, the same person like Mrs. Donkelson and her bougie ass shoes <laughs> would not expect to take financial advantage of any other retailer in the same way. I mean, you save up, you get a personal loan, you call in a favor like you would if it were a kayak or a pair of Air Jordans or your car. Mm-hmm. Air Jordans? Do people still wear those? Oh my God. Yes, Jerry. It's a, it's crazy. It's crazy. Okay. Um, Never mind. I have a bunch of friends in Cincinnati who source and field new Air Jordans before they hit the market for $1,000 a pair. It's it's crazy. Mm. Oh my gosh. The money we could make selling sneakers. Yeah, beat the hell out of, out of this violin business. Yeah, nobody would ask you to pay by the month. But, but uh, it, this isn't about telling people who are buying instruments you need to show the instrument and the maker the respect they deserve this is about telling the person who's listening to this that when i talk to people and they say to me how do you manage to make a living making and selling instruments the answer is show your respect to your show the respect to yourself that you and your instruments deserve and be firm, straightforward, and not wishy-washy or passive at these stages of the process. I mean, you, 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 you look at people who offer lifetime guarantees, any work on the instrument, and Bo Hannum, who we had on our Luthier versus Luthier episode, he popped up a few months ago with the Rolls-Royce warranty agreement, which is kinder than every other one in the business, for cars, because it's Rolls Royce, three years, nothing past that. That is a company who is making the highest end luxury item that is supposed to be turnkey, easy to use, no problems. Three years, and it's yours to deal with. And getting in that mindset to some extent is showing yourself the respect that is necessary to make a living at this. Mm hmm. Uh, what do you, I mean, what do you guys think about that? I've, I get flack from people whom I respect and who are better at selling violins than me for talking hard nose about this. So all we really have, you know, we are selling an item, but it's really our time that we're selling. And yeah. so if you're going to have some sort of agreement like that and something goes wrong, it is costing you the opportunity of making more money. So you need to be compensated for your time that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't offer some sort of deal but it shouldn't necessarily be gratis from forever yeah and there's there's maybe the line and just like jerry we know you don't really hate people but when you talk about it you feel grumpy about people i do i love people i don't really shut people down if something goes wrong with my instrument i fix it and I bend over backwards to fix it because mm-hmm. I want my name in the world to be positive. But you can always be kinder than the contract. You can never protect yourself more than the contract. So word that motherfucker hard. Jerry, I just think that you have a friendship with grumpiness. And that's nah. fine. Actually, I'm not really grumpy. As you know, I, I talk to a lot of people throughout the course of the day, including... You do. Including you people. <laughs> And I have some dear colleagues whom we commiserate a lot, but sometime we'll have to go into the, the other side of the coin 
if 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 being a full time maker is one side of the coin, being a full time restorer is the other side. It's there's a lot of things that ring true with both as far as protecting your time, protecting yourself, and the amount of time you deal with people. What did they say in Tropic Thunder? Never go full time restorer. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't have an opinion to push back on you regarding selling an instrument you made. I haven't done that. And uh, ask me in five years. Maybe, maybe I'll tell you you're wrong. Oh, you're going to sell my instruments. Thanks, Rosie. <laughs> what I heard. Uh, so we are doing uh, sales lines that work for us that close. Always be closing, Chris and Jerry and Rosie. What do you guys got? So my favorite, I mean, I never really relied on a lot of lines. My my biggest sales tactic ever was just selling something that I was really passionate about and knowing a lot about that. That sells things yeah. more than anything. But if somebody needs a nudge, the line, if you love it that much, I can't guarantee that it will be here next week. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. I like that. That's the essence of mine. A lot of times somebody wants the instrument badly, but pulling the trigger is something they are not emotionally made for doing in any situation. So the same thing that Jerry does, my, my, my line goes, every instrument of this quality has the potential to be what the player needs if this needs to be adjusted so that you have it where you want it, I'm here for that. If this isn't the instrument for you, you're not letting me or it down. It's going to sell to somebody else. But how would you feel if you went home today and never saw it again? And the sort of person who is emotionally distraught enough that they can't make a decision, you can watch their face and know what the answer is in that moment. And then you press them or you thank them and ask them if they would like to try the next instrument in that size that you finish. Uh, For me, of course, different market. I have a lot of high school kids who are buying their first instrument. They've played for a while and I've got to navigate this relationship with the parent who's buying Mm -hmm versus the kid who is shy. For me, getting a successful sale involves a lot of making that kid comfortable with speaking their mind. What do you like? What do you not like? You're not going to hurt my feelings. You are helping me help you if you express something you don't like about that instrument. Uh, Make sure you're playing all four strings. (laughs) Don't just play a note and decide that's enough. And when I can get them to be comfortable, when I can get them to really start playing, then I, I know better information about what kind of player they are. And then yeah. it's about seeing them. If that instrument is a match, I express, I can, really, I can really hear what you're going for there. I can really see you fitting well with that instrument. And that's usually the one they go home with. Yeah. I think that uh, what I hear you saying there is that empathy is one of the strongest tools. Well, not that's not all you were saying, but what I resonate with what you're saying is empathy is one of the strongest tools for making people understand whether they should spend the money or not. And it's not a manipulative thing, even though ostensibly on paper, it can seem that way. Mm-hmm. I will not push someone to sell an instrument 
if I'm manipulating them, but I will push them to make the decision if I can see that it's for them. Any final thoughts, guys? I like to do uh, voices from cartoons for for kids if, if they're nervous. Rick and Morty is a favorite. Can you give us a little sampling? <clears throat> yeah. Your parents must be really proud of you to see you grow up wearing a, wearing a whistle. God damn! Nice job. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know, Rick. You know, I always used to to, to tell kids, because uh, a lot of times when kids come up with parents, that you're you're talking with the parent and not the kid. And the kid's this, the kid understands what's going on. So a lot of times I would look to the kid and say, you know, I'm 35 and my, my mom still talks about me in front of other people. <laughs> It never stops. <laughs> and the kids just kind of light up and chuckle, and then it, it's a good icebreaker. So feel free to use that one. I like it. Guys. Rosie. Rosie. Last month, we did two truths and a lie. Truths. Yes. And we asked, what's the correct method for removing a plate? And this was so damn hard for me. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> so who was lying? <laughs> That was me, I guess. Such a liar. Such a fucking liar. Such a liar. Yeah, so one of my giant pet peeves is the amount of time and the technique at which people spend to take tops off. I spend Mm -hmm. so much time, and the reason I employ a robot in my shop is to fix the under edge of instruments that have been screwed up. So, So on that line... How hard was it for you to listen to me to say my <laughs> my technical truth of the way I used to do it many years ago? Man, I rarely, you know, I'm not the type of person that says I need a drink, you know. <laughs> but man, after that, I needed a drink. I was like, oh man, this is this is this is painful. Yeah, I don't do that anymore, but it was technically the truth for me at some point in history, and I needed the world to know. I needed to get my Omo Bono confessional out there. Nice. <laughs> oh, okay so, okay, so this week. Guys, what is the correct way to fit the bridge feet onto an instrument? Correct is, is hard here. It is, it is hard. Okay. I saw a guy boil a bridge once and then put it four steps above 440 under pressure and the bridge feet fit (laughs) because the bridge had been boiled. So the maple was so soft and hot that it just pressed into the top and it worked and I was pissed. That's one way to do it. Okay. Okay. Well, here's the other thing. There's a lot of ways that you can get that shape to fit, whether or not they're friendly to the instrument is another thing is something we don't care about oh the opposite of that fuck you i care um devolt how do you do it so i first start with a large chisel or knife and i i get the the feet to fit as close as i can by eye uh then once they're they're fitting by eye i move on to a very fine uh, colored chalk that I put on with a makeup brush. I dust the top of the instrument and then using a raking light in from the side, I pick off with a curved blade, the high spots until all those are gone. And I get chalk reading all the way around the, inst- all the way around the bridge feet. You use chalk? I use chalk. 
I've seen, and, and I mean, I'm still going with stuff that's maybe a lie, but uh, one, one of the finest luthiers I know uses his ex-girlfriend's mascara pencil. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just like, oh, but you're getting black on the instrument. He's like, if it is old, I don't use the, the black. Yeah, lipstick is another thing you see a lot too. Mm-hmm. Hill compound. Yeah, that'll work. The, the, the blood of small animals. Mm-hmm. 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 I've done that. Or small children. Yeah. You know. Oh, poor kids. In my older days. <laughs> uh, so I only subscribe to the Burgess method. Oh, yeah, yeah. Religiously. It's it's the only way to go. You use a reciprocator or you use a, the jigsaw? Oh, the jigsaw. 100%. Oh, dude, any, anybody who's listening, like, you just have to look this up on YouTube. It's such a, such a good method. And, and it's fast. <laughs> Like you get it, like when you gotta do some rentals, you you gotta knock them out. You gotta get those bridge feet. Move on, move on. That's what my shop does exclusively. We've got one at every bench. Stop laughing, <laughs> Chris. How do you do it? How, how do I do it? Um, so I do pretty much what uh, what Jerry does, but um, instead of a chisel, I start with a large curved blade knife. And then when I'm close, I go to well, once, once visually it's fitting almost everywhere to within a few tenths of a millimeter everywhere. Then I either use uh, mylar acetate, which is like plastic tracing paper with just graphite on it, or I use mm-hmm. red china wax crayon or, uh, or some, I have some old German contact paper, which I cannot find anywhere that uh, I got a piece of in the 90s and it still gives more ink out than any graphite or, or contact paper I've ever I've ever found. But really the, the key is once you've set it up and got it under tension and done your string heights, especially on larger instruments, on cellos and stuff, you have to come back and refit those feet if you're a professional. Yeah. And it sucks. Like you have to like use a string lifter lift the bridge up, put it down onto contact paper or mylar with something, put the tension down, wiggle it, and then refit them once or twice, or your bridge will move around and need to be replaced faster. Mm -hmm. But I'm for that guy that that boiled the bridge. I was amazed because I saw him him boiling it and I'm like, this fucking asshole. And then I like went and like checked the bridge feet really close with my good eye, you know, and I'm like, oh, you're... This is amazing. This is a new caraway strings method we're going to try out. That's amazing. Well, guys, you've been fellowshipping with St. Omobono and the Homo sapiens. Thank you for joining us. Next month, dispatches from rental season. Yay. Yay. We plan to all still be alive. No, no, no. A thousand times no. Do you have something to contribute? Email us at mail at omopod.com or reach out to us on Instagram at omopodcast and look for our Facebook page, omopod. Don't forget to tag us on Instagram as well with hashtag omopod, hashtag omosapien, hashtag omosaves us all, hashtag omomomygod, what is going on in America. If something reminds you of the story this week, go ahead and tag us. Hey, thank you all for contributing stories. We couldn't do this without you. Mwah. Mwah.
Invoke Sound plays our theme music. You know, I always used to to, to tell kids, uh, "You're adopted." <laughs>